0: Welcome back to our last episode of 2020 for Air, an interview podcast series with a different theme each episode. This month's guest is one of the foremost sound recordists in the world, Chris Watson. Chris has been obsessed with sound and field recording since he was young, but his career began in the 80s when he started working as a sound recordist for television. Since then, he has traveled the world recording the noises of animals and nature for documentaries like The Life of Birds, Life in the Undergrowth, and Frozen Planet alongside Sir David Attenborough. His solo career includes a vast archive of sounds and textures recorded for the BBC, as well as his own original music. In this conversation, we discuss field recordings, the strange sounds of nature, and his unique process of capturing the world around him. Thank you so much for joining me. I know this is a bit of a strange time, but um, thanks again. Pleasure, Emma. So during my research, I read an interview of yours um, on the BBC where the author wrote, Chris Watson hears things that other people do not. So I'm wondering, what was the last sound you listened to that most other people in the world haven't heard?
1: (laughs) <clears throat> I think most, everybody can hear it. It's just that we don't really take the opportunity to listen. It's no, um, it's not secret in that sense, but I just, I pay attention to things and I've, I've learnt how to listen, which isn't difficult. In fact, it's much easier now with all the problems we've got. But um, so I, well, the last thing, I mean, the last thing, I've, I've been recording things in my garden here in Newcastle upon time, which when I recorded them, very few other people had heard but since they've been broadcast on the radio I imagine now lots of people will heard them and that was that was a piece about drawing attention to listening while we have this current opportunity where there's very little noise pollution. I think normally we don't hear things because it's masked by in the places that we live anyway in cities by traffic and aircraft noise so we tend to tune everything out simply to hear what we're doing to get through the day and so but at times like this you can really open your ears and, and listening and, and that's quite a unique experience for a lot of people so i think a lot of people are discovering sounds literally on the doorstep that they hadn't heard before that's because the opportunity is present and of course now we have the luxury of time as well we're not fran- frantically um dashing through our day and our daily lives so i think lots of people are hearing new things at the moment i mean i I am i'm paying attention at the moment to um sounds in my suburban garden because it's the unique and the spectacular some of the birdsong here you know you don't have to go to the tropical rainforests um to hear the most amazing sounds you just need to take the opportunity when it's presented to you locally
0: and so when you say you're recording in your back garden um what what sounds exactly were you were you listening to
1: it's mostly birdsong because at the moment here as is everywhere in the northern hemisphere it's springtime so it's a really good time for the dawn chorus so there's lots of birdsong a lot of birdsong it's out at the moment it's it's the peak time of year um, this weekend is, on Sunday, is International Dawn Chorus Day. So there'll be people all around the world recording. But where we are, in our latitudes, um, it, it's absolutely the peak time for birdsong activity. So that's what I've been recording, territorial birdsong of common birds. Blackbirds, robins, thrushers, great tits, blue tits, wrens. So it's... Um, it's a really good opportunity. It's a good opportunity to record them in close up, which is something I'm interested in doing. So it's a bit of a challenge. I'm using my field craft and field skills that I normally use in places like tropical rainforest to get microphones close to birds in my back garden. So I just enjoy it. It's just good fun trying to do that.
0: And so, how is it for you to hear these, you know, for example, uh, bird sounds that most people only get the chance to hear in recordings, like when you're there in real life in the, in the Amazon, or as you said, uh, what is that experience like for you?
1: It's an exhilarating experience to, to be to there and listen in real time. Um, and it's interesting because it's a, it's a completely solitary activity, which is something I really enjoy, really relish. When you wear headphones and listen to sounds through a microphone, only you can hear the world like that at that particular moment and it's it's the same really as as taking headphones off and just listening being there being present in the space in the moment and and listening it's it's a unique experience but what I like about my work is, is being able to to do that have the privilege of doing that wherever I am in the rainforest or my back garden Mm -hmm. at four in the morning but then record that and then present it and try a lot of aspects of my work is trying to um put the listener where my microphone was when I made the recording to share that experience because I say you can't share the experience on location I mean a group of you can go and stand and listen but then it's not quite the same um so like, I enjoy the solitary aspects of what I do on location. And at the other end, I really enjoy the broadcasting of my work in its widest sense to an audience or to a place or to a group of listeners. So that's something I really enjoy about my work.
0: You've also had the opportunity to go to some really interesting and really remote places over the course of your career. Like I was reading about one location that was in the foothills of the Himalayas where they only allow something like 40 vehicles per day to go into Mm. it. So it's like a very undisturbed place on the planet. Can you talk about that experience in particular?
1: Well, that was a place I've been fortunate to go to a few times. It was the Corbett National Park in northern India about... um, six or seven hours drive north of delhi in uh, i think it's in Uttarakhand, the province um it's the foothills of the himalayas and it's um it's a really beautiful area it's divided by rivers from snow melt off the himalayas in particular the river ramganja runs through the park and it's a national park and it's a tiger reserve um And it's one of the best tiger reserves. It's um, a place where the population of Bengal tigers is increasing. I think there's something like 150 or maybe 200 tigers. But there's also leopards there. Um, So it's a very rich place for wildlife. It's about the size of Greater London. So it's a large national park. But they have this, I really like the sort of Hindu philosophy in that It's a national park, so it's really reserved for the animals, not for people. And so they're very restrictive. So the only, I've been there several times, I used to run workshops there and I've done some film trips there. Allow about 40 vehicles a day into the park. And you have to be accompanied, you can't just drive on your own. You have to be accompanied by a park ranger. Um, And one of the great things, one of the great things about their philosophy is that. At lunchtime in the middle of the day even though there's only 40 vehicles allowed you have to go back to one of the forest lodges there's what the main lodge is a place called dekala and you have to go back there to give the animals a rest from being looked at hmm. that's their philosophy which is a really beautiful <laughs> philosophy the challenge is you, you you rarely see animals because it's it's a very dense forest it's Sal forest which is these very mature, dark, tall, hardwood trees. Uh, The Hindi word for that kind of forest is jungly, which is where the word jungle comes from, the sort of English derivative of it. And uh, it it became famous where there was a a very famous Indian um, hunter turned gamekeeper called Jim Corbett, um, who was a a tiger hunter and he used to go after tigers that that became man killers people killers um and some of the tigers that he shot were responsible for killing more than 200 people in the 1940s so these were these are mainly animals that become old and unable to hunt sambar deer uh, which is their traditional prey and they picked on humans because they were easy and can't run very fast uh, and there's still a lot of tig- people fall casualty to tigers uh, in the surrounding villages, women particular, unfortunately, that go into the forest to collect firewood and become prey to tigers. So Corbett would go in and shoot these man-eating tigers and he became very famous and he then turned to conservation and the park's named after him. So it's, it's a remarkable place, a really rich place um, diversity of wildlife in the rivers there are freshwater crocodiles uh, two species called gharials and muggers and the rivers are really beautiful Um, and the forest is remarkable and relatively untouched so there's there's elephants in there lots of elephants and so there's sort of anti-poachers patrols in there so it's well fairly well protected and because it's very close to the himalayas it's not overflown by commercial aircraft, so and with so few vehicles, it's um, it can be a really quiet place, and you really get the sense you're entering this ancient forest when you go into the place. The difficulty, of course, is you can't get out and walk around in the forest right. because there's lots of tigers there. And the first time I went there, um, it was because that was the last place that a, um, a European had been killed by a tiger. A famous photographer called David Hunt in 1985, who was leading a group of bird watchers around the park. And in those days, you could go on foot on the tracks and on the trails. They were getting back to the lodge near at sunset, and he told his group to go back to the lodge. It was only a mile or so away, because he wants to photograph an owl. Um, that he, he thought he'd heard, but in fact, everybody thinks he'd seen a tiger pug mark, a footprint, and he, it was it was um, it was his ambition to photograph a tiger. So, in in fact, one of the party was a friend of mine, somebody I know, and they started walking back to the lodge, and they had this terrifying scream after about ten minutes, and they realized something terrible had happened, so they ran back to the lodge and. Got a mahout out, a, a person who could uh, ride an elephant, and they went back on this elephant and found his body, and he be, had been killed by a tiger. Wow! So after that, um, they stopped people travelling on foot in the in the reserve. So now you can only, you can get out of a vehicle, but you have to stay very close to the uh, to the vehicle that you're in. Because tigers, very large Bengal tigers, can just disappear into the forest. They're so well camouflaged. And the ones that I've seen have been really close. you just just in the open sided jeep, and the guide will stop because you would never see them. You need a, somebody who's, who's really got their eye in, would stop the vehicle. And uh, within 10 yards, there can be a tiger just asleep in the, in the forest, wow. and you would never see it. It's amazing. So I can recommend a trip there, but you need to be careful.
0: So you mentioned that um, this place in particular is very quiet. I think what's interesting about a lot of the animal or bird sounds that I've listened to of yours on the BBC website is that you can also hear some of the kind of background ambient noises of the places that you're recording in. So how is it for you to record in these types of places like this area in the Himalayas that has so little noise pollution? Obviously, you're hearing more more sounds or hearing sounds more clearly
1: yeah i think uh, and also i don't it's only for very specific reasons that i want to get super close recordings i quite enjoy a lot of my recordings having part of the ambience of that particular environment Mm. because it's you can't disconnect really one from the other you sometimes need to do that for film sound purposes or radio programs or if you need a, a very specific recording um But I quite enjoy that that mix and and that balance. And that's one of the things that interests me, that that balance between the two perspectives. Um, It's something that you can only really capture on location. We can do lots of things with the software that we've got available these days, but one of the things you can't do is manipulate perspective. That's Mm. something you need to get right when you're on location. It's rather like using a prime lens in cinematography you um it has to be in the right place and it's the same with a microphone in terms of perspective so at the moment i'm recording with this dpa4060 which is a very close perspective but if i if i do this right then that becomes a much more distant perspective and we can hear that clearly and that's something you can't replicate even with the very best software huh. you um It's part of the process of recording, using the microphone like an acoustic prime lens, I guess.
0: I wondered if you could tell me a bit about some of the more isolated or remote places that you've been to. Last year, we spoke briefly by email, for example, and you were on the coast of Iceland, I think it was, uh, doing recordings, and the photo you shared with me was like this massive expanse of black sand beach with like one person in the photo. Oh,
1: yeah, yeah. Um, Well... If we start, I suppose... I mean, I've been to the two most remotest places on this planet, which is the South Pole and the North Pole. I worked on a series for the BBC a few years ago called Frozen Planet, and we're very privileged. I went with David Attenborough to the South Pole, and we spent some time filming there. But there's there's an American base there um, called the Amundsen-Scott South Polar Base. And so it's very remote, but there was... There's 250 people living in this polar base. Um, so it was remote, but, but quite heavily populated. I suppose the remotest place I've been is um, the North Pole, where we were taken to by a, a Russian military helicopter um, to do some filming. And of course, the South Pole is ice on top of a mountain range, so it's land. But, but, uh, but a lot of ice on top of the mountains. The North Pole is, is the frozen ocean. There is no land there for about a thousand miles in any direction. So we're stood on the middle of a frozen ocean at 90 degrees north, um, effectively on the pole. Although, of course, you're constantly moving with the, um, the polar current. Which which slowly you slowly circulate around the pole. So I spent some time there, and um, at one point when we were filming, I was I was there was just David and myself because they wanted to get some shots of David on his own at the North Pole, and I stayed with him t- to record a bit of sound, and everybody else went off in this helicopter to get this remote shot. You can just imagine it, David in this his red uh, jacket as this isolated spot in the middle of this sea of ice. And so we were stood there and I got my GPS out and um, it, was, it was showing 90 degrees north, but we were moving very slowly. And I looked in one direction down, looked at my um, GPS to where, to the west effectively, where we've got, I've got friends in, in Los Angeles and on the west coast of the United States. And imagine what they were doing there. And then I just turned a few degrees and looked down to Europe and to uh, the UK where Maggie, my wife, would be here at home and imagine what she was doing. And then I made another turn and looked down towards Australia where I've got some friends and imagine what they were doing. Where we were, we were in bright sunshine. But I was looking at people, down towards people who were in the middle of the night or the middle of the day or at the end of their day and that really affected me because I thought, well, there's all these people living their lives in, in completely different time zones at this moment. And I'm stood here where every time zone on the planet converges. Mm. So what time is it now? And that that question really sort of freaked me out for, for quite some time. Because all these other times were very evident, but where I was stood, or where I was stood with David, every time zone converged at our feet which was made our isolation more extreme because we were I felt completely disconnected from everything else or connected but disconnected from everything else on the planet so that was the sense in terms of remoteness that was um, an isolation apart from I was with somebody else but that was that was quite extreme. Mm. The, the beach you're referring to in was is on the southwest coast of Iceland, but I, but I was there with a, a film crew, so as usual, you know, you didn't see those people in the picture because they they're mostly all behind me. But it was a remote place. There was only us there at that time, and a lot of the time, that's the case. But I don't really I don't really regard it. I don't think about that so much. I, I think much more when I'm there. I think about where I am in that moment and. Um, you know why I'm there and what I'm doing. I suppose it's only with hindsight or retrospect that I think about where I've been. I've just been to Baja, California in Mexico trying to record Blue Whales and that was quite an isolated remote spot out in the uh, Sea of Cortez. I
0: interviewed the landscape photographer Thomas Joshua Cooper who in a similar sense to you has been to some very remote places in the world and he said that those experiences are very humbling for him because they really bring to light kind of the enormity of the world. Does that resonate with you?
1: Yeah it does although because of up until now because of the way we travel you know the earth to me has shrunk in the last 20 years because you can get everywhere so easily you know you can fly to the south pole you can fly to the north pole i mean that might change and and i'm hopeful that some of it will you know that we'll all fly less after this but in some senses the world's never been so small um because it nearly everywhere is is accessible in some form and i'm quite often disappointed by that you know and um when i see people with these ludicrous challenges like walking to the south pole and you know that this sort of competitive aspect of it and they use these terms like you know we want to to beat this or to overcome this you know and it's completely wrong you know the sort of that sort of, the attitude and the terminology to things like that and so i wish it, a lot of places were more remote and more inaccessible i'd be quite happy with that i have no desire to to get to those places because they're remote or inaccessible. I think in the 1980s, I was, I was working for the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds, and there was a Russian, or a Soviet as it was at the time, um, naturalist, came and spent some time with it. it, was called Algirdis Kynustautis, and he'd published a book on the birds of the Soviet Union. So this vast tome, considering how large the Soviet Union was, of course it's, it's changed now. And, and he gave a talk about the concept of nature reserves in the Soviet Union and, and the RSPB, the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds has this policy of creating nature reserves and then inviting people into them to look at the wildlife and he found that a really alien concept because he said the Soviet nature reserves um, that they had were exactly that they were reserved for nature and nobody was allowed or encouraged to go to these areas, apart from from some science and research, which I thought, aside from all the rest of Soviet politics, it was actually a a really interesting concept, that you have a a nature reserve that is reserved for nature, and and people aren't encouraged to go there.
0: Do you think that the recordings of these sounds... Can ever truly live up to hearing the same sounds in real life?
1: No, I don't. I don't think you can. You can. You can get. You can represent them closely, but of course, it's not the same. It's simply a recording. Um, it is in, in no way um, comes close to actually being there. Um, so I don't. I don't try and achieve that. I try and I try and get people as close to where my microphone was when I made the recording. So I can share that experience. Um, And the more, it's a bit like filmmaking or programme making. Mm -hmm. The more you can get people to suspend their disbelief and transcend the technology. That's why I like working with spatial sound so much. Then um, you can, you know, you can take people to those places metaphorically and you can, if they close their eyes, you you can transport them to places. I've just made some a couple of pieces walks in in Scotland for people who aren't very able for people who aren't able to to walk or get out for it's a charity and um, and that's been quite interesting so that people who are housebound not just because of the current situation but because of so sort of health reasons um, you know you can create a sound piece that will try and, and give them that sense of escape to go to places that they will they'll have only have read about because they simply physically can't get there Um, and i think sound is very powerful in that respect it transcends film because it's um it doesn't have a you know you can close your eyes and it's like the in the bbc there's there's a very old cliche that says radio's better than television because the pictures are better Mm -hmm. so you, you just need to close your eyes and you will you know if you say suspend your disbelief and the piece, is, the piece is good enough, it can take you to places, but it's, of course it's not the same as being there.
0: I know that as a young boy, when you were gifted your first reel-to-reel tape recorder, this whole process of going outside and recording and then bringing these sounds home with you was really fascinating Fascinating for you. Apparently you still find that a very magical process even today. So can you tell me a, a bit about that process or what, what makes it so special for you to kind of bring these sounds back back home with you?
1: Um well, it's a very liberating experience in the same way that when I first remember doing that, and you know, of course, I mean, it was like 12 or 13, so it's a long time ago, more than 50 years ago. So I like to think I can remember that moment. But I still enjoy that now, as everybody does. I recorded a blackbird in my back garden last week, and I was there as I was making the recording. I was listening on headphones, and I took my headphones off and listened directly and then put the headphones back on so I got an idea of how accurate I thought the recording was but then just listening to it back here in my studio again was a magical experience because as we were talking earlier that's the power of sound it can take you back i think rather like our sense of smell which is probably the most powerful sense it can instantly it's very visceral sound you know it strikes directly into our hearts and imaginations and almost a unique way it's very powerful and so i still enjoy that that thrill of of, of listening back to something even though i've heard it originally um and, and, and you know for, for what that's what i do anyway you know i'm a sound <laughs> artist so i like to enjoy that side of it
0: And so how do you hope that that translates to your listeners? Like, obviously, they don't share those same memories of recording the sound as you do. So what kind of feelings do you hope that listening to these sounds ignites for them?
1: Well, that's a good question. Um, I just hope it conveys some sense and spirit of place. I mean, that's very a very powerful thing. And I'm convinced that that, in the broadest sense, that spirit of place... Much of that is embodied in the sound or the acoustics of any particular habitat or environment. And we're all very good listeners. We've evolved from people who are good listeners. And so we can, our ears and brains are very good at manipulating what we hear and making sense of it. And by, as we're doing that process, as we're making sense of things, then it, it's sparking our imagination. So I'm not sure what happens when other people hear my recordings, mm-hmm. but I hope they get a similar sensation to what I've had because that's one of my aims, to, to try and replicate that experience of being in that location. It may not do that, but if it sparks some sense of interest or enthusiasm in other ways, I mean, I know... Since I've been recording, a lot more people go out recording. And, mm. and maybe that's because they've enjoyed some of the things that I've done and it's it's given them food for thought about what they might become interested in and what techniques they might try. So I think it's very broad, but I just hope you know people will engage with it and enjoy it.
0: Would you say that your years spent recording sounds all over the world has given you a unique ability to listen?
1: Well, I mean, I certainly do listen. The older I get, the less I record and the more I listen. But we're all good listeners. We simply, up until times like now, when things are very different from normal, we don't normally listen because we're surrounded by so much noise pollution. I know what Berlin's like. I was there in January, and it's the same as the city I live in, Newcastle upon time. The really busy, noisy, noise-polluted Polluted in other ways, environments, and so simply to concentrate on what we're doing, to get through the day, to communicate with friends and colleagues, we we tend to block out sounds, and that's a quite a power-hungry process in computing terms, like CPU. Not listening is quite an intensive process because our ears and brains are filtering out sounds to um, concentrate and focus on on what we're doing, on on communicating. So the process of unlearning that and opening your ears is is a bit of a challenge, but it's quite a liberating experience. And I think people are discovering that for themselves at the moment. So yeah, I'm a good listener, but we all are. You know, that's why we're here. Um, You know, I contend that 40,000 years ago, we were all living in caves Um, around the world, in New Mexico, in Lascaux, in France, in in Asia, in Africa, and Australia, and Indonesia. We're all living communally in caves, and at night, when we're all piled up in there, asleep, and a saber-toothed tiger or a pack of spotted hyenas came into that cave, we are the people that have evolved from those that heard those animals come in and escaped out of the back of the cave, to simplify it. Those people that didn't wake up, those people that didn't hear those predators approaching, came to an evolutionary dead end very quickly. The sad thing is now we've lost much of that sense, that acuteness, because hearing is very rarely now a matter of life and death. Perhaps when we cross the road, and that's about it these days. And so we don't, we've lost that fine-tuning ability, because it's less critical for us. Of course, we never stop listening as well. We don't have ear lids. (laughs) We're listening even when we're asleep. Hmm. When you're asleep in your apartment in Berlin and um, there's a noise outside or a sound outside, you will hear it and you will respond to a certain degree. You may maybe not even wake up. You will perhaps not even wake up, but it would affect your blood pressure and you, there would be a response. And it's like that for all of us so because we're all good listeners.
0: That's really interesting. There's a BBC feature about you uh, where you reference a John Cage quote that there's already enough music in the world, we just need to listen a bit more carefully. Can you talk about this idea of finding music in these organic or everyday sounds?
1: Well, it's my opinion that um, all our music from all the cultures around the world have evolved from people listening to the sounds around them, the sounds of the natural world, um, what was happening around them, and then mimicking that or reproducing it or being influenced by it. So natural sound is the source of all our music, and I think that's still reflected today. We can hear that, and composers have used that for centuries so there's a musicality to everything around us if we give it the opportunity even I suppose noise I mean I, I'm interested I don't listen to much Japanese noise music but I'm very well aware that what that is is pattern recognition um, and and that's still the case throughout all aspects of music one of the challenges and one of the pleasures of listening to music is that is, is finding pattern recognition or patterns um, elaborate forms of it sometimes or very long um, wavelength forms of pattern recognition Um, and so we hear that in the natural world and we can we hear those as compositions when I go for my five kilometer walk every day at the moment and I go into a big open space I'm hearing skylarks singing overhead um, and very little traffic but as I move the skylarks this solitary point of sound in the sky Uh, at a particular perspective but as I move the perspective changes and to me that's a very musical style and I can modulate that I can I can create a composition by walking around underneath that bird or walking from one place to another and just noticing the transitions and again it's something we've forgotten but, but people a long time ago were very well aware of that how acoustics would change from open spaces, from savannah to cliffs and from the coast to mountains. Um, And I think, as I was saying earlier, part of the conversation, we've lost that ability because it's less critical to us. And we've internalised some of it, and that's represented in our music. But the roots of it are all um, in the sounds of the natural world. I'm convinced about that, no matter where you're from. And even our language. I, I keep forgetting the reference, but I think there's a good... There's a very good reference I read years ago about the fact that even our language developed from people in some part of again northwest India mimicking birdsong, and, and language evolved from people mimicking animal sounds, and in that case, bird sounds, because it, they were, it was all around them most of the time.
0: One of my favorite pieces of yours is the wire. So I'm wondering, like, would you describe that as music? Also, like, if you if you hear music everywhere is
1: something like that also music for you? Yeah, of course it is. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I really, I don't, I don't have much time for definitions like that. You know, it's whatever you like, you can think of as musical. You can think of it as your breath, as, as music, those sort of cycles and harmonics of your breathing. So the wire certainly was, I mean, that was down in the, the wired lab, which is run by Sarah last and Dave and Burriston, And, and, um, David very accurately described it, the the wires, as microphones in the landscape, because it's a vibration that comes out of the air and the landscape and becomes manifest in the wires, these very long Australian fence wires, which are modulated by temperature and humidity and rainfall and wind, uh, and produce this really complex harmonic structure. Um, and, and I've done a couple of residencies down there over the years, and that's where I made those recordings in a radio program. And it is remarkable. Of course, that's a technique that lots of people use all over the world. You can go out and put a contact microphone onto a fence, or you know, in a park, or some railings near where you live, and you'll pick up very similar vibrations. Mm. It's, it's mechanical vibrations manifest. Sort of tonally, through, through con- effectively through contact microphones.
0: You once called the sounds made by the wire some of the most strange and most beautiful sounds that you'd heard in your life. Um, is that still true today, like nearly five years later? Have you heard anything that compares to it?
1: Yeah, all the time. I mean, I tend to be, I don't tend to have favorites in that sense. It tends to be what I'm doing at the moment. And so I become very engrossed in what I'm doing and, and you know, um, I'm affected by, you know, it has quite a, a powerful effect on me personally and psychologically listening to sounds like that because they were, they were unique to me at the time. I'd never heard anything like it and I was there in terms of that presence. I was actually, I could hear it. The posts vibrate so powerfully with that sound. You don't need a microphone, you can hear it um, and so that had a very powerful effect on me and uh, so at the time physically i was affected by it um, but then at the moment you know i've been as i said i've been I- i'm profoundly affected by what i've been hearing in my back garden you know the bird song so it, that, that idea i don't have favorites you know it's um, it's usually what i'm working on at the moment
0: does the strangeness or maybe the uniqueness of a sound also depend on how it's recorded for example i know that you are really interested in putting Microphones into places like birds' nests or animal burrows, like places that you wouldn't normally want to put your ears. How does that kind of magnification influence or impact the sound and how we perceive it?
1: I'm really interested in that, in, in, and it goes back to perspective, which I was talking about earlier. Um, and a lot of that came about with my work with film and radio and television when I presented or worked on some sound design or gave my tracks to editors they were really interested in the fact that you can give them different unusual perspectives and when I started to do that um, I realised that it was it was a not a new way of hearing things but it was a a new experience for me and something I was really engaged with and it came about by accident I, I used to work on a television series called Big Cat Diary and I was with a Camera woman called um, Justine Evans uh, and we were filming lions I think it was in the Masai Mara we were working from a vehicle so she could sit in the passenger seat and with a Canon with a 50,000 euro Canon telephoto lens fill the frame with the head of a, a lion from 100 meters away so there is no audio equivalent of that and, and when we came to do the post-production of course She, Justina, got these amazing close-ups and I hadn't got any sound to match that perspective. So it's quite frustrating. And so I evolved over time, over several trips and working with her, this idea of being able to get a microphone to represent the visual perspective of, of what she'd shot. But when I did that, it became really interesting because the pictures became redundant because the sounds for me became so powerful. Um, the closer you get because you then started to hear rather like when I made my first recording when I was 12 you heard the world in a different way and quite a unique way and it was very simple because I was just using you know these little personal microphones which are visually unobtrusive and very small and you could get them into interesting places where you wouldn't want to put your ears or be able to put your ears and that for me became very revealing and that's why I did the second album I did for, for Touch um, Outside the Circle of Fire because it was it was a world that we don't normally experience but it came about simply through this accident of not accident but this means of representing what was on, on screen uh, with the same perspective of, uh, in sound
0: And so, obviously, for when you when you're talking about uh, these TV programs that you were working for, you know, you know what you're going outside to try and record. But how does that work in your daily life? Like yesterday or this morning, when you were going out to record, do you know what you're looking for and what you're listening for?
1: Sometimes, you know, but I'm very open to uh, to a new experience. Or so sometimes, I mean, with my a lot of my work because it's. Time on location is quite precious. It's either precious to me when I'm on my own, or it's expensive in terms of film crew time or, or you know radio um, recording time. So I do go out speculatively, not at the moment of course, but I go out and listen and investigate places. And I think as I said earlier, I do spend more time now, the older I get, listening rather than recording because i mean partly because i've recorded so much rubbish you know i'm very <laughs> careful now about pressing record mm. so um you know i go out and and listen and i'll go out and just explore somewhere you know it's i, I do that i go out with maggie my wife into the cheviot hills in northumberland and i you know i deliberately don't take recording equipment partly to appease maggie she gets sick of it <laughs> if i'm stopping every 10 minutes so to record something so You know, I have to consciously leave that behind. I can still listen and think about. I'd like to come back here on my own and do some. You know, spend a a day recording. So it's a bit of both sometimes. Then, because it has to be, it's very targeted Mm. because there's a cost involved, either in terms of time or or budget.
0: And so, how much research do you do prior to? Uh, these expeditions that are for television or for something, a specific project. Like I was watching uh, a talk that you did with Sir David Attenborough and just your combined depth of knowledge about these creatures that you were recording was really incredible to listen to. So I'm wondering, is your interest in nature and wildlife as deep as your interest in sound? Is that research process something that's really crucial for you?
1: Yeah, I enjoy that side of it. It's part of it you can't disconnect from it and I, I know I've learnt from experience with working as a freelance with the BBC Natural History Unit for 30 odd years you know I see the amount of research that they do That those you know amazing series and documentaries that they make don't happen by accident it's quite often I've just started a new series with David called The Green Planet about plants and and there's effectively Two years, a whole team of people researching that program series for two years before anybody goes out and turns a camera over or starts a tape recorder or makes a sound recording. So, and the research is is impeccable, and so uh, that sort of rubbed off on me. I realise because so a lot of the things that you know that we go for are quite challenging, and so you really need to know what you're doing to to achieve any. Um, idea of success and as i said these are expensive trips in time or you know um, how much it costs to get to places and spend time there so the more and it's interesting anyway you know the more you look at animal behavior in particular you realize a lot of it is quite predictable you know the 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 enjoyable side of that is of course the animals then don't read the script so you can do all the research (laughs) when you turn up the animals might not you know they might stay in the trailer and refuse to come out. Um, so, you know, I like both that serendipitous side and the research side. The whole process really fascinates me, just as much as going out and finding something um, that that you've never heard before uh, just by chance. I mean, it does happen. So, I think you need to keep your ears open and your attitude open in that respect.
0: Just going back to this process of recording, um, what would you say is the the strangest place that you've dared to put a microphone to record? And what was that (laughs) resulting sound recording like?
1: Um, Well, there are lots. Uh, I was talking to somebody about this the other day. I I put microphones inside um, the decomposing body of some animals. Um, I made a recording of... um, sexton beetles the larva of sexton beetles sexton beetles are called that because they'll inhabit decaying corpses of of animals and humans and lay eggs inside and then when the eggs hatch they the the, the larva feed on the decomposing uh, body parts um and so i've done that with with a mouse a decomposing mouse which had Um, sexton beetle larvae in it because they squeak as they commit and the the adults communicate with the larvae encourage them to feed by making this squeaking sound which sounds actually quite amusing and attractive until you realize how how the sound's generated and what's happening so i used a very small microphone a bit like this one on a piece of brass wire and very carefully inserted it into the body cavity of this deceased mouse (laughs) wow so um that was one i mean and i put my you know put microphones in zebra carcasses and things like that to record vultures feeding and i've record i put microphones inside i did this recently actually or last year with a group of children actually it was really funny put microphones inside a cow pat a piece of cow dung and contact microphones to record dung flies landing on the surface because they make this remarkable buzzing sound and I did that with a group of kids, and they thought it was fantastic. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so I read that your microphones are usually connected to hundreds of meters of cable because you prefer to kind of listen from far away. If I'm understanding correctly, can you talk a bit more about your your technical setup?
1: Yeah, I quite like this idea of remote listening and recording, and, and it's again it's an important part of what I do. So um, because if you stand there holding a microphone. In the natural world, nothing will come anywhere near you because mm. um, of the inherited fear of, of humans from animals. I mean, rightly so, the persecution they've suffered fr- from us. And so you can go out with gun microphones and reflectors and, and, and get re- relatively close recordings. But I've always been interested in tuning into places and, and, the, and the animals that inhabit it. And one technique is to go into a place where you've done some research and found out that it's a place worth recording and um, put some microphones out, camouflage them sometimes, hide them, and then run long cables back, sometimes two or 300 meters, to a place where you can listen and record from without disturbing what's around the microphones. When you go into a place like that, put microphones out, you obviously create a lot of disturbance. But then by putting them in place, leaving them as immobile, inert objects and moving away very quickly or relatively quickly, any animals in that area become habituated to that, providing it doesn't move or make a sound, um, will become habituated to that object, your microphones. And then after, let's say, 24 hours, we'll start to behave normally around it. And so that's when I've achieved some of my best recordings by having that microphone in a place and, and recording the behaviour once it's settled down of the animals and the sound of that place. So it's an important, that's an important part of my work. It's very time-consuming, but very satisfying. And again, I just like the process of going back somewhere, putting some headphones on and, and dipping into a world that's, that's not actually where I am, but somewhere else and hearing the world in, in a different way. So that's, I mean, it it involves equipment that you can do that with, you can leave it out for extended periods of time, involves using long cables and so it's a relatively sophisticated and equipment hungry technique, but it's something I do a lot.
0: I have seen photos of you, though, where you are more in the middle of the action. There's a picture of you with a a microphone and there's, like, alligators surrounding you. Obviously, obviously those processes produce different recordings, but what distinguishes them from a sound perspective? Like, is it just this kind of perspective that we were talking about before when you're closer or further away?
1: They're very different techniques, really. The photograph you're referring to, I wanted to record the low-frequency growls of alligators, and so the only way to do that is to get close, and so I had two microphones, omnidirectional microphones on a pole, and I had to get as close as possible to the alligators to get that very quiet sound. There was I was with somebody because it was potentially quite a dangerous situation, and and they took a picture of me doing it, so that was necessary. I mean, I've used I've recorded crocodiles with a long cable technique in, in Africa, in Tanzania, by the Grumeti River, where um, a place where crocodiles would regularly haul themselves out from the river. And so I put some microphones in, in bushes and pointed it down to where they were and, and kept them there over a few days and came back to them. But the, the, the picture you're referring to, those animals were quite mobile. And I was only there for a couple of days so, I had to take the opportunity and get a microphone close to them. Hmm. So, very different techniques. And also, that was a single species recording. My remote microphone techniques normally capture not only the sound of the habitat, but the sounds of several uh, animals over a few days. Not always, it's sometimes they're targeted for one particular animal, but um, it's usually a um, pickup other recordings over a longer period of time
0: I know that when you first started out you used uh, more analog gear obviously and still sometimes do that today despite it being probably quite cumbersome can you talk about the microphones and recording equipment that you were using when you first started out in your early days
1: well the interesting thing is that the microphones have evolved some of them are rather better but not all of them so I still use microphones that I've had for 10-15 years so that I mean they're very high quality microphones and so they are microphones that have proven to me that they can work under the sometimes hostile environments that I work in so I don't change anything for the sake of it they've been very good and very reliable so the microphone technology is is not it not evolved at the massive pace that analog to digital technology has. Uh, my recorders have changed significantly over the years, but the the microphones and correspondingly the techniques haven't. I still use microphones and long cables, mm-hmm. and that's what I was doing 20 years ago. What's changed, of course, are the recorders. We've gone from analog technology to digital technology. Although I still have some analog recorders, and I still. There's still reasons to use those sometimes, not often, but sometimes. But now all my recorders are, are digital of different different marks that I use for different purposes, um, and and they've evolved in the last in the last nine months. I've, I've bought a a new recorder uh, because of things that happened to my other one. So that, that that evolves constantly the recording side of things. But I'm very happy with what I'm using now to record because it's worked in very hostile environments and that was one of the problems I had with other digital recorders. They sound great, they're very lightweight but um, they didn't always work in the sort of places that I went to, like that beach in Iceland. The recorder that I was using there um, got some grains of lava in the control surfaces and locked up, which was a real, you know, really bad thing mm-hmm. and, so I, and then so subsequently so, Subsequently, I invested in another new recorder, which was much better um, in hostile environments. So it's the recorders that have changed principally.
0: Right. And so how are these more modern pieces working for you? Like, uh, I know that, for example, you developed a recording technique using a particle velocity microphone. Uh, what does that mean?
1: Well, it's exactly that. I didn't develop it. I used it. And, and it was a, it's a very special device. And I used it in the very special circumstances to record the stridulation of a, a caterpillar effectively. It's not a location device. I had to use it um, in a recording studio in a radio studio. and it's like a super contact microphone. and I, I was loaned it from a um, an institution to make a very specific recording of this caterpillar stridulating and some and some wood ants as well. So that was a highly specialised bit of equipment. You would never use it outside. It has to be in a studio because it's so sensitive and it had to be inside a radio recording studio where there was no external sound. So a bit like, you know, recording studio environment because it was so super sensitive. You know, I I had to stop breathing or move away at some points when I was making the recording or hold my breath because uh, I was picking up, you know, all, all the sort of breath sounds from it. So, yeah, that was a very special bit of gear, but a remarkable recording, actually.
0: Hmm. What about when you're recording underwater? I know that you use something called hydrophones, but you've also said that the sound in water is more of a vibration than in normal conditions. So can you talk a bit about the variety in spatial sounds that you've discovered or that you've noticed?
1: Well, with hydrophones, it's uh, when we're hearing each other now, apart from the electronic process, we're hearing each other now through changing air pressure. So the sound of my voice is coming out of your laptop speakers and exciting the air around it and it's that changing air pressure that's reaching your ears and the same with me i'm hearing you through these headphones Um, but in water fresh water and seawater it's not that it's a vibration because it's a much more dense medium sound travels almost five times faster through seawater than it does through air so so Seawater is a very efficient medium for sound and vi- well, vibrations. So, in everything, Chris Clark from Cornell University told me, um, everything in the seas and oceans lives in a world of vibration. They have yet to discover a deaf sea animal. Everything lives in that world, um, and that's how most animals navigate, find mates to reproduce, um, hunt, find prey. So that sense of vibration is vitally important. And that's how hydrophones work. They're, in a way, a little bit like contact microphones. The, the the vibrations affect the whole area of the hydrophone, and that's turned into an electrical signal in the same way that air pressure in this microphone is being turned into an electrical signal, which is then duplicated as far as possible in your laptop um, speaker diaphragm. So the... They're very different ways of um, of listening in the medium, but I've always been interested, or for a long time, been interested in how vibrations works in the seas and oceans, in freshwater as well. And I worked a lot with people like Jana Vindran, a good friend of mine, Norwegian sound recordist, and she does a lot of work with hydrophones as well. Um, so, and it's a fascinating area, it's a fascinating idea. I mean, we, we, um, a lot of the time I think we live on planet Earth and of course we don't, we live on planet ocean. 70% of this world is occupied by the seas and the oceans. We just live on the dry bits in between and sound is a very rich medium. So the seas and the oceans are not only the largest habitat on the planet, they are the most sound rich and so it's a fascinating area to explore.
0: And so what does that mean for the, the actual sound that we're hearing in a recording? Like, does that mean it's better?
1: Well, it's different, because if you put your head underwater, you don't hear sounds like that, because there's an air gap. It's very inefficient. Even if you are completely submerged, there's still air inside your inner ear. So at some point, the vibrations in the water... Whether it's in your bathtub or or in the ocean, the vibrations in the water have to vibrate the surface of the water and translate that to air pressure so your brain can convert it to sound. That's a very inefficient process. Much is lost over that translation from a, a vibration in water to changing air pressure. hydrophone is much more efficient at that so it represents the sound much more accurately we don't know of course but it's we imagine that's how those animals in that environment hear those sounds Mm. um they tend to i mean they don't tend to hear it because most certainly marine animals don't have ears they have they have um remnant ears but they feel the sound throughout their body fishing for example have a lateral line don't they and it's believed that they pick up vibrations along that lateral line and that to them is what we call sound um, some marine larger marine mammals like orca and some of the great whales and other dolphins feel sound through their entire a lot of time through the jaw I mean as we do as vibration They don't hear in the same way that that we do. But hydrophones, as far as I'm aware, represent a more accurate way of, of perhaps how they do hear or feel sound. You know, we still feel sound even though we're hearing it through a loudspeaker. You've only got to go to a concert and stand next to the bass bin, you know, and you feel that sense of vibration.
0: So, what kind of underwater sounds have you captured?
1: Well, lots of underwater sounds, everything from um, the tiny, well, the loud cracks of pistol shrimps in rock pools through to some of the songs of the great whales. I've actually, it's quite a sore question because I've actually just returned from Baja, Mexico, from Baja, California in Mexico, where I was trying, something I've been trying to do for a long time, record the song of the largest and loudest animal which has ever lived, which is a blue whale. Mm. And I went there for a week in March and completely failed. Um, we, we got close to them every day, we got very close to blue whales, which is quite, a, quite an experience. Um, but we never heard them, which is a real disappointment that's something I've been trying to do for a long time, did did almost a year's worth of research to get out there at the right time, spoke to the right people, the right scientists, and and negotiated all the logistics of it and and didn't manage it. Um, So I've recorded other large whales. I've recorded um, humpback whales and I've recorded fish with Yana Vindram with um, Karen de Jong from the Institute of Marine Research in Bergen last year. Uh, And lots of... Um, freshwater aquatic invertebrates, um, water beetles, boat water boatmen, things like that, pondweed. So, the, the, you know, there's lots of areas to research. It's a fascinating, exciting and interesting area to explore.
0: I guess it's like you say that nature doesn't follow a script. So I can imagine it's really disappointing to get all the way out there and then have it not work.
1: Yeah, it was. Yeah. Yeah. But you have to be you know, philosophical about it, It's um, it was a good learning experience, it was a great trip anyway, you know, was, uh, I like that part, I've never been to that part of Mexico, it was really good.
0: I read somewhere as well that you always bring backup equipment and cables just in case anything gets stepped on or eaten by animals and you've apparently had this happen to you quite a few times.
1: Yeah, I mean I've lost microphones to hyenas who've eaten them, <laughs> um, I've lost lots of cables to animals who've bitten through cables, sometimes very long cables. I was recording white tailed eagles in Scotland a long time ago, and because they're, these are a protected bird, protected by legislation, by law, so I, I couldn't approach the nest once the microphone had been put in the nest. So I was using 600 metres of cable back to it. That was the closest I was allowed to get to this to these birds and uh, it all worked fine for about two weeks and then the cable had gone run through a field where the farmer let sheep into and one of the sheep bit through the microphone cable so instead of hearing the sounds of the white-tailed eagle's nest I got the English service of Radio (laughs) Moscow on shortwave so I've had a few occasions like that I was putting out cables once in the kalahari desert to record uh, meerkats at at sunset and these ground squirrels came out as i was laying the cable and started to chew this cable as actually i was laying it out they were somehow fascinated by this cable so they ate the cable as i was standing in front of it Um, (laughs) so i've lost quite a few cables like that and a few microphones um so Yeah, you always have to take spare cables and spare micros. You can't take spare everything. You know, don't have two identical recorders. Um, So although sometimes take a smaller backup recorder. Yeah, so you have to be aware that things can happen like that.
0: (laughs) Obviously, since the COVID-19 crisis, you've had to stop travelling for the time being. But I would love to know where in the world you're hoping to travel in the future when this is all over or what sounds you want to record in the future.
1: Well, as soon as I can, I want to go to Holystone Forest in Northumberland, which is about an hour's drive from here, which is one of my favourite places. It's a place where I take a lot of walks. Well, I do go walking there with Maggie, but it's one of my favourite recording locations because it's, it's, it's quiet. Unfortunately, now's the best time to be there. Now, um, April, May. So, and I doubt that I'm going to get there. So, um, But it's the place... As soon as we're able to that i would head out to just to get some sense of space and also the beach we um, we live within 15 minutes of the coast here in northumberland and one of the great pleasures that we have normally I, I spend my mornings in the studio recording or working on pieces and then i always you know i really get fed up of looking at screens at monitors that are this far away um so I really like taking a long view, and so uh, most afternoons when we can, we just drive out for 15 minutes to this beach, take a walk on the beach, where you've got this amazing vanishing point horizon where the sea meets the sky, which is miles and miles away. So I really value that. I miss I miss doing that actually, and just the the sea air, the ozone, and the you know being on a beach, feeling my feet on the beach and the sand or on the pebbles. So I miss that, Uh, but it'll it'll make it better when when we go back.
0: You've been listening to sound recordist Chris Watson for the twenty ninth episode of Air. We'll be back in 2021 on the last Wednesday of every month, and we can't wait to see you all again next year. Until then, thanks for listening.